0: Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. welcome to the episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, how long realistically would you wait, how many years would you wait to paddle down a river? Huh. I guess it would really depend on
1: whether I could get on one of those, you know, paid for guided tours or not.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess the private the <laughs> private tours would be better for you. It seems
1: to me that the the tour probably bought up all of the slots for going down the river and passed some kind of bylaw so mm. that people had to buy slots so that they could know they could take turns.
0: Bonus question: Would you wear a helmet?
1: Definitely, yes. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to get there, you know, their melon broken open on a stone like some kind of like fat watermelon.
0: <laughs> yes, I uh, I found it supremely foolish of <laughs> Alexander Supertramp to not wear helmets.
1: Alexander Supertramp is quite the fellow. He just, uh, (laughs) he plays by his own rules. Yes, yes.
0: I also want to say, uh, Happy New Year, David. True, this is,
1: I guess, our first recording. Our uh... first recording in
0: 2021.
1: Man, 2021 already turning out to be quite something,
0: eh? (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Uh, And it's just kind of neat to think that this is the third year of a number that we are recording in.
1: I know. Before you know it, we're gonna be like ten years into this and you know, have have a whole history of
0: podcasts. Also, maybe a nice little serendipity here. This is episode seventy-five. So our seventy-fifth episode. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about too. That's
1: a number. You know what I mean? I don't know why. Seventy-five has always been an appealing number to me.
0: It's like it's because it's both a five and a twenty five you know yeah it's like a, it just
1: feels like it's a good it, it feels like a <laughs> solid number well like it's one of the bec- pillars of the number community it's
0: a marked number between a, you know fifty and a hundred
1: yeah it's like an important yeah.
0: number on the way to a hundred so yeah we're uh three quarters of the way to a hundred
1: <laughs> man hundred episode a hundred is gonna be epic yeah I what just, are we like, gonna
0: feel- what are we gonna do um a hundred and one Dalmatians I don't know. <laughs>
1: I think we should have like some kind of poll of our fans and be like...
0: Maybe episode 101, we should do 101 Dalmatians.
1: I think that would make a lot of sense, to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. For episode 75 today, we are going to be doing the 2007 film Into the Wild, starring Emile Hirsch, William Hurt, Marcia Gay Harden, Jenna Malone, Kristen Stewart, Katherine Keener, Hal Holbrook, and a couple other people I don't know. I'd probably missed someone and this one i didn't really know this at the time but this movie's directed by sean penn did you know that oh i did not know that yeah wow and quite famously also the soundtrack uh with songs a few original songs re- uh, written and recorded by eddie Vedder, the lead singer of pearl jam so True. i'll have a few True. thoughts on that later in the episode because I go. think the soundtrack of this film is part of its just wonder and beauty. I was thinking, though, because I actually was talking to a friend about this today at work, and when I said we're recording Into the Wild, she was like, is that fiction? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Well, I mean, it's sort
1: of fiction. So, yeah, what do you
0: think about like this style of fiction, David? Does this count for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's... About the fictions our minds create, right? Well, this is clearly not a documentary. <laughs> well, is music fiction? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like- yeah.
0: Well, because for for those of you who aren't familiar with the Into the Wild film story, this is based on a book by a John Krukauer, maybe. I can't remember exactly how to say his last name. And his book is based off the journal entries and testimony of this one guy and his family, Christopher Johnson McCandless, who traveled around the United States for a couple of years and then went up to Alaska, where he ultimately passed away, but went on his own. So, this is much more based on a true story than like Robin Hood. <laughs> That's no, I mean, it's a valid point. I I guess we, but it's our podcast. We exactly, get to do yeah. We want with but it. it's like, it's interesting because it's like Into the Wild is like, it's like closer to the source of the legend than Robin Hood, but it's like very much on that continuum, right?
1: Oh yeah, it's just like, it's almost that Walden-esque wandering into the forest and seeing if you can survive. There's something utterly romantic about that conception.
0: Yeah, and like guaranteed in the film, we're getting a dramatized and accentuated point by point of the story that you know it's like um, I think it was Hitchcock said a story is just real life with all the boring parts taken out
1: true (laughs) and this story
0: we definitely got all the boring parts taken out and there would have been a lot of boring parts in this story
1: (laughs) oh I mean I mean all of the many days working on the farm or working in the fast food joint to save up money like there was a lot of grinding it out in the in the trenches yeah. to get where he wanted
0: to go. And so I'm actually really, really glad you already mentioned Walden. <laughs> yes, um yes. You know how we often talk about there being kind of two main strands of American literature? There's the, like, existential brooding type of the, like, Fitzgerald and Faulkner and Melville and, uh, you know, um, even Steinbeck to an extent. Yeah. And he, but even I was thinking catcher in the rise, Salinger, right. Yes. Like there's this, and yeah. then we've also said there's the humorous American lit, you know, the Mark Twain, Vonnegut, Joseph Heller kind of feel kind of irreverent comedy. But yeah. I was thinking yeah. like this, this film into the wild, I think represents the third great literary genre of Americana, I guess, or Americana that, I think is well known to everyone, even though it may not be talked about. It. And it's like the, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but like speculative naturalism, almost. Right. It's like also
1: a, like a, an adventurism, like mm-hmm. a frontierism.
0: So like the naturalism and the, and the appreciation and the love of nature, I would at least draw back to Emerson and Thoreau. Right? Those, right, which which yeah. weren't exactly fiction writers, but they were literary. Right, that the transcendentalists were known for being very literary in their nonfiction. Supertramp even references him in the film. That married with the more modern kind of Jack Kerouac take on the road. Also, Jack London. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, and he's reading Call of the Wild. And, oh, and that's the, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like this this combination of a love of nature and a love of exploring it and a love of travel. And then even a little bit of that kind of self-reliance that also ties it to Emerson.
1: Oh, he's very attached to the idea of self-reliance mm-hmm. like that that feels like probably one of his most significant thoughts is yeah. around that.
0: So I was just thinking, like for our purposes, I think that this is the third great American contribution to literature as a literary genre. this I don't know exactly what to call it either, but I'm calling it, I guess. Traveling, speculative naturalism, or or, we or go. love of nature, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there are some beautiful, beautiful essays that Emerson wrote about appreciating nature. Because he's more famous for kind of the social stuff and the social ethics stuff and the and the self reliance stuff. I think he, the fact that like he had some really big essays on on appreciating the beauty of nature, and I yeah. think that there is something. Probably my favorite forms of American culture kind of revolve around this speculative part that I'm calling. Like, I I hear it in a lot of the songs I like by bands like Third Eye Blind, just this kind of like having parts of the country, just natural parts of the country referenced in the art that they make. Yeah. And and this film, I mean, my God, how gorgeous is this movie?
1: It's just appreciating the the vast variety that is America, I guess, in this movie. But it makes me feel like the vast variety of Canada, too. Oh, for sure. Canadian.
0: For sure. I mean, I think Canada could very easily fit into this. It's not a hard mold for a Canadian to understand. No, not at all. <laughs> but no. I would say all of the best, well, not all, but I mean, well, a Canadian artist or artist group that I think does do this very well is the band The Tragically Hip, True, right like some true. of their mass appeal for Canadians is the fact that they'll reference these tiny places in Ontario or Manitoba or Alberta yep, right like just true. and and it's something about being both excited by and humbled by the vastness of a terrain right yeah and and I do like I just I feel like, that's the kind of almost spiritual feeling people will get when they read Thoreau or when they read Kerouac, right? Is this combination of a, a deep appreciation for the beautiful landscape? Another book, it's more philosophical, but like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance has this kind of feel to it as well, right? Like, the combination I of the think, um, road the, trip like and the
1: Spell of the Yukon, Spell mm. of the Yukon poem. That's another great example of that, I think.
0: I know it's a theme we've brought up a few times, but just my appreciation of coming back to some of these movies or books that I haven't experienced for a while, but I loved like a decade ago, right? With all of the extra tools I can bring to bear now to think about how I would slot them in into the great canon of culture of our era, you know, and and just like how into the wild, is one of the best, I don't even know if you can call it modern anymore because it was 13 years ago or 14 years ago now it came out. But one of the best modern adaptations of that sense of the American and we'll say Canadian passion of the natural life and natural world that obviously, at least in his best moments, Alexander Supertramp or AKA Chris McCandless has in this film, right?
1: Yeah, I think like Chris's biggest beef with existence is that he doesn't like who he is and he feels like he's lied to and he has no control over everything and like that life doesn't have any of the meaning that he thought it did. And I guess that's one side of existentialism, but I think he also comes to the deeper appreciation for what's possible at the end Mm -hmm. in that he, you know, he has the realization that. He's not an island, that his actions do impact others, that, you know, that that the enjoyment and awe and mystery of life is best shared.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that that's why kind of the way the film is made and how it slots in all of these different experiences he's had leading up to his time in Alaska, interspersed with all of the scenes in Alaska, like it's really well, it's a really well crafted film in that sense where you are building a sense of what brought this guy to Alaska, but simultaneous while you're seeing scenes of him already there, which is kind of interesting, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And that sense of uh, happiness is only real when shared. I just feel like, and I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth, I think, but I, I just, I felt a very, I don't know, like this is just the kind of, movie that makes me feel uplifted even though it's a very sad ending well
1: it just it, it's almost like that benjamin button-esque
0: glorification
1: mm. of the beauty of life or even that american beauty kind of monologue at the end about how it hard to be be it's hard to be angry when there's so much beauty right
0: yeah because like of all of those all the scenes throughout the film even though he's so often by himself, he seems happiest when he's interacting with all of these strangers he comes across and then gets to know a little bit, right?
1: Or, like, remember when he surprises the couple that he was in the mm-hmm. RV with for a while? Exactly. Like, like at the next place, so he finds them, like... Big
0: smile on his face the yeah. whole time, and his the relationship he he um, develops with that older guy, Ron, I think his name is, at the end. Yeah, closer I, yeah to the end. I
1: actually watched this one with my mom and dad, and my mom said that was her favorite part, is just the the connection you can have with people at any age, at any time. Uh, yeah.
0: So, yeah, I think uh, we'll get into it, but just before we do a... A kind of quick plot rundown. Just want to say thank you, everyone, for taking a lit time to listen to uh, Really True Fiction. Dave and I really appreciate it. You can uh, find us on Facebook. You can like our page on Facebook, Really True Fiction. You can send us an email at reallytruefiction@gmail.com. at um, You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from, any of the apps. We're on all the major ones so that uh, you can get a notification every time we release a new episode. We try to release on Sundays, and uh, we really appreciate anyone who's listening, uh it's been so much fun and we've seen a little bit of growth recently and that's always really exciting to imagine more and more people hearing our voices out there in the ether and the nether regions of <laughs> the slip <laughs> yeah, space of kind time. It's
1: easy to think like people are actually starting to listen to us talk about these things. And I mean <laughs> I think one of the coolest things and I think you and I would agree that we've branched out into having our some of our friends come and talk about yeah. things. My hope is that one day, maybe a random guest that we've never met before, either totally. of us, reaches out and says, I'd love to be on the show. Yeah,
0: if you are uh, interested in being a guest on Really True Fiction, no sweat, of course. Just send us an email and we'll talk about what movie or book or whatever to do. And I don't know, like I, I'm sure it's similar to you, David. There are some podcasts I'm listening to and I love it, but I just wish I could jump in with the point I would make in this moment. <laughs> I think
1: that's actually one of
0: the things that they
1: that our guests so far have all said that they that they yeah. wanted to do that sometimes when they're listening to us talk, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I encourage our listeners just, like that would be fun.
0: Totally. I think we'd all enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So again, thank you everyone for listening. So, do you want to do a quick plot rundown of this film?
1: Okay, so uh, it's kind of in that '90s theme of messing with time. Uh, wouldn't you say? Like, there's there's that yeah. that feeling. There's a parallel dark storytelling. Yes. Yeah, uh, Memento. You're kind of just wandering through the the chrono- chronology, and you don't you understand that you're moving through chron- chronology, but you don't understand exactly where you're at until later on. You kind of become oriented to where you're at. But basically, it's about a a young fellow that's Chris who graduates from university, and he's you know saved up all his money and he just cashes it, takes it out. His parents. He has good enough grades to get into Harvard Law. But he doesn't think he wants to, so he decides to go on this kind of adventure to find himself. Almost this, you know, you know, this dream walk or this, you know, the, the, the coming of age, the, the you know, graduating into manhood. And he just feels this sense of needing to kind of run away and wander the earth. Uh, so we see these various places that he goes, he, you know... He's <laughs> kayaking down the Grand Canyon, he's working on a farm, he's working at a fast food store, he loses his car, he lives with, you know, hippies and, you know. All over the, the USA,
0: all over all the country. Of the
1: US. And it's beautiful, I think, one of the things we all enjoy the most about this movie is the scenery and just the... Like you said, the connection to nature, that that Emersonian way of looking at the world in an appreciation and awe that I think is sometimes we need to have more of in life. Like I I think if you have more awe and more appreciation of the things around you, we've talked about, you know, getting your head into something as opposed to understanding everything. Mm, Yeah. I just feel like this movie is a good example of how some a sad story can actually be really beautiful because we under we observe it instead of you know desiring a certain outcome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know. What do you think? Like basically. Well, well,
0: then, and also just how he's in Alaska a lot of the time as well, and that's right. like the so, end of yeah, his trip.
1: That's where the chronology is weird because he ends up in Alaska. And we're kind of slowly it's like slowly explained to us why he ended up in Alaska, and like that was kind of his end goal. And then we basically watch him doing this whole survival thing while having flashbacks of his l- the lead up to this. And then we discover that he has had a series of kind of unfortunate events and, and is not going to survive yeah. this. Yeah. And so we're left with this very nostalgic, mortality-reminding feeling of beauty and appreciation for consciousness and life itself, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It seems like most of the time he's in Alaska, he's actually really enjoying it. And it's only like the last little bit where it really starts to fall apart for him. And he discovers in the Alaskan wilderness, this uh, abandoned like city bus, (laughs) this old city bus, yes, uh, which makes this just great iconic. I mean, I have no idea how it could have even have gotten out into the middle of where he was. But it did. So, <laughs> and because this is based on an actual story, there was one where the real Christopher McCandless went. So that's just an interesting little yeah. wrinkle in the story, I feel. And then the chronology is strange in that we're getting all these flashbacks, but it really builds the story well for like different parts of him in Alaska get explained by different parts of yes, what we see well in the flashbacks.
1: Yeah, it's you know? very well tied together that way.
0: And it is even written like a book. Like, I think there's five chapters and it's like birth, adolescence, manhood, something else. I don't know. You know, like there's, and then death. Like, so it is like a life trajectory and um, yeah, just, just beautiful. And then all of it. And I, and I'm going to mention it again. And I mentioned it before, like the soundtrack of this movie just is so perfect. You know, you know, it's like when music just perfectly matches a film that are inseparable Eddie Vedder's just kind of like soft suffering yells and and <laughs> and just the way he like ah, 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 like just his, the way he can kind of wail even his wailings he's got uh, he's got a way with the with those vocal cords Oh my gosh it's uh Pearl Jam is one of my all-time favorite bands so I'm a big Eddie Vedder Rock and roll type, anyway. But I feel like this film was a little bit more, even David style of music, right? The little bit, yeah. kind of mandolin. Of,
1: I do, I do love the music. It's a in, yeah, in this film, it's it's got that bluesy feel, right? The uh, yeah, the American like there's something else that America gave us that nowhere else in the world could the blues. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, and uh, if I may, it's even a little bit melancholic. Ooh. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. (laughs) So, Most of the things to talk about in this movie are just about Chris and his life and his decisions. But I guess maybe the best place to start would be his genesis in this, at least ostensibly, is the fact that he has just a terrible relationship with his parents. Yeah, I think it looks...
1: There's a lot of uh, him feeling like their abuse of one another spilled into his understanding of the world and just really clouded it i think
0: mm-hmm. Well, and we find out a little bit later in the film too that part of that is that <laughs> him and his sister were actually the second family his dad had right
1: yeah <laughs> and like the the mistress family which is you know the whole thing is very weird but then
0: he chose that family right yeah so, like his yeah. mom was the mistress but then his dad chose their family and kind of like disowned his original son with his first wife or the first woman
1: yeah and it's just yeah it's very messy
0: So obviously baggage there, but I don't know, like as a jumping off place, it's a little bit difficult for you or I, I think, to empathize with this because we had, we both come from very loving households that I don't think put kind of, at least in the the career sense, undue pressure on us in the way that we get the sense from. So like, I don't know, I guess we have to almost be totally intellectual or conceptual about it, but like, did you feel any pull with his like, what did you think about that whole – I don't know. I guess I felt like Chris – this all this this pain, it's not very well brought out in the movie, but this pain that he has about his parents, I, did, I, I felt like he might want to do this anyway. Like, I, it was almost like it was – okay, do, I'll put it in the form of a question. Do you think he would have gone on his wanderings without his parents? He being probably would, would have
1: written them a letter or something to explain why. But I think he still would have gone Mm. because I I think his his issue. But the question, I guess, the fundamental question of this character is, was it his angst about his parents that made him feel angst about the entire world? Mm. Right, because he he's got a lot of criticisms of modern society. And I'm not saying those criticisms are wrong. I'm just saying he's very negative about everything. And usually, I I see that as a sign of like an immature mind, mm-hmm. right? If if you if you aren't excited about anything in the world, if everything is just kind of a downer, or then I I just don't see you as very open minded or or curious about the world, right?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I guess he was only 22 when this happened. Well, that's what I mean.
1: I, I don't think that he's kind of had the time to understand that maybe you know his own individual pain is not so mom- momentous as he might have thought mm. right yeah cuz i mean especially
0: at that age your emotions are just still so raw i think they sure were for me well
1: and i think and i think it's impossible i mean i remember when i was that age it's impossible to explain to yourself what you're going to know when you're uh, when you're older right <laughs> right you're yeah so like everything you feel just is so intense and real and and if you could step away from it for a little bit and be like actually this is going to happen a couple of times and you're going to get used to it, right?
0: Yeah, and and you're right. Some voiceover from his sister says that he was very engaged and aware of um, apartheid going on, I guess, in South Africa and um, the famine in Africa more broadly. So those are the two major political issues and and socio-political issues that he was pretty passionate about, I guess. And I mean, again, like to... I I certainly remember. I I feel like I was the kind of person who, if I was in university during that kind of time, that's the kind of stuff that would have riled me up too. Just just knowing how I was. I think
1: it's like how a lot of people feel about injustice, whenever they see it when they're in university. Like, It's kind of annoying because when you're in university, you don't really have any power to do much about it. Mm -hmm. And yet you just feel so passionately about these issues. And like you want change now. And you're kind of, you know, you're full of, hormones and and you know instant instant gratification desire right and
0: you like, have this kind of weird place in your life where you have a lot of time to study these things a little bit more in depthly than the general population so it's really easy when it's your thing and by your thing i mean not obviously something like apartheid isn't chris's thing in the global sense but in the local sense it probably is his thing compared to the thousand people he might interact with in his life he oh, probably yeah, he would know
1: more about it than everybody else right and, right? and
0: when that happens you feel it, it's easy to feel so dispirited and disgusted even with those around you because how could not everybody else know as much about as i do as just a kid a 22 year old as this really important thing going on in the world well
1: maybe maybe the most and you probably at that point the most important thing right sure you become, of course like, yeah if 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 you and then you start to judge people who don't consider it to be the most important thing.
0: Actually, this is probably worth a second or two in a modern sense too. That's a really good example of and it's hard to do, obviously. It's hard to do as a it's hard to do now at our age or even it's any age. I think it's hard to do at any age for a human, but certainly when you're, you know, 20 to 22 in university is um not jumping down the throats of people who don't know as much about you as you do on your passionate thing yeah
1: and And instead of instead of like getting after them for not knowing it exactly like you do maybe being
0: excited to tell them about it that would totally change the dynamics of a conversation oh for sure and certainly To be avoided, it would be like moralizing to the extent of like, oh, you don't know about this. You're a bad person. Or, oh, or you don't use the right words. do a
1: lot like, because they use their thing. Oh, you don't know that? Like, what do you know? Yeah. Right? And,
0: and part of it is just kind of building an awareness of life of like a lot of other people who aren't in university, Mr. Christopher, have jobs and families and a lot of other things that are going to take up their time that are important to them that, sure, I think— when it's something like apartheid everyone could have a little bit of knowledge about that's probably not an unfair thing to ask of a would-be enlightened society I'm thinking also of like people just using the wrong words now or the or like old words or um unsure of how to address certain topics and just the kind of I guess avoiding sanctimony on these kind of issues. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I think sanctimony is always a negative character trait to to see in yourself. If you be if you're becoming sanctimonious, that's probably a signal that you need to do some serious personal self-reflection. Well,
0: and I mean, I from for me personally, my peak sanctimony time of life was age 22 to 25. For sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just think that that I, Sanctimony is an indication of a really uh, defective character. Like at at that point, if you can truly be sanctimonious, you've lost your grip with reality because everyone should be at least self-aware enough to realize their own mortality and their own, you know, inability to know all things. So sanctimony is like there's no humility in sanctimony. It's literally taking pleasure from like a fantasy in your head.
0: Okay, but um, do you think that there's something particularly like th- this age group we're talking about like twenty to twenty five I just feel like that age group is- su- uh, particularly susceptible to this kind of thing, you know I think it's just they want to
1: feel a part of something and they're f- trying to figure out their place in the world and it's a big world and they haven't you know really settled into any kind of identity, and so they're they're like
0: test they're trying on identities, you know what I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm circling around it, so I'm just going to talk about it directly. Like, I think the modern version of this is so much of policing people's language for not the quite most up-to-date version of how to correctly signify or categorize something. So I was listening to a podcast today about a person who's a, a law professor at Yale And she was telling an anecdote about how one student just got, like, verbally bullied by all the other students because the student used the word prisoner. That's not the right term anymore. It's incarcerated person. What? Because, well, and the justification is prisoner is too stigmatizing, right? Oh, my God. Well, look, whether or not that's true... The fact that you would, in a huffy and puffy manner, talk someone down in the classroom in front of everyone else for their unforgivable ignorance on that kind of thing is almost completely different on whether or not it's a stigmatizing word to use, right? Right. And I just, I'm not, I'm being a little bit harsher on this, I think, because I know it's something I suffered from a lot when I was in that stage of life. So it's almost like a like a retroactive mea culpa <laughs> on my part to note it and I, I don't know like i definitely feel like that might be kind of like chris is a little bit like that in the movie but he's a little bit passive about it too maybe he doesn't quite rise to that level but i think your point is good right like it's it's just a uh, anything sanctimonious of chris is not anything around his best parts
1: no No. And actually, it's not even the parts that the people who love him like, right? They're like, they're constantly like, shouldn't you tell your parents where you are?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he's just sanctimoniously like, you don't know what they put me through.
0: Yeah. He's, um, he's too, he's very rigid on that point, right? He's like, he can break but can't bend when it comes to his parents.
1: Exactly. And
0: and it's too bad. It's very, it's very too bad. It's too bad
1: because I think there'd be a lot of potential for him to have more joy if he just, let go of that pain and anger that he was holding on to.
0: Oh, for sure. I guess that brings us into the part where he meets Rainy and what was the woman's name? I can't remember.
1: I don't remember. The
0: couple in the, the couple in the, what were they? They were rubber tramps and he was a leather tramp. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Rubber tramps. Yeah, that's right. And how he injected his way into their life. And I guess this is like the first time where they start asking about his parents It might not be this scene, but they're like the first one to ask about him talking to his parents. And I think this is the part of the movie where he actually quotes Kerouac. I think this was the first introduction
1: I ever had to Kerouac was when I watched this movie. It was the first Kerouac quote I'd ever heard.
0: And maybe you can help remind me what the context is. But he he says a whole bunch of things like rather than give me. And then he lists a bunch of things that are useful to have. Like I think grace or compassion or kind of says give me the truth. Right. That that part really resonated with me, I think. I
1: think what he wanted, why he wanted the truth was because he felt like his parents had lied to him that whole time. Like, that's pretty obvious, right? Right. Yeah. And that I mean, was the context of why he wanted the truth was because he felt had been lied to by the people who were supposed to be closest to him.
0: Well, it definitely feels, even through the film viscerally, like his parents have this kind of look down not not his mom so much she's a little bit more of a peacemaker or mediator but his dad definitely has this like look down his nose expectation of him
1: and what she kind of i think part of what he's rebelling against here is the concept that these parents who he knows have screwed up so royally are still willing to judge other people, right? oh
0: yeah, yeah, the like the right? baseball fans who come into the bar in that scene.
1: yeah, and he's like, you guys were yelling at each other in front of us, and now you're mad that they're disturbing your dinner. like mm. it just a I think he just feels that there's a lot of hypocrisy wandering around in the world. yeah, and
0: do you think maybe then, as more of a principle, like do you think the truth helps diffuse hypocrisy later on?
1: I think, like, I think, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about the idea of don't lie or, you know, tell the truth. And and if you can't, at least don't lie. Mm. And I think what telling the truth does more than anything is it isn't even about your relationships with other people as much as it is about your relationship with yourself.
0: Mm, yes. Like, if
1: you know that you aren't hiding things, you have a lot less stress. You have a lot less You're not worried about being found out. You don't, you know. Have a cold sweat every time you think about, you know, (laughs) find out about the bad thing that I did, right? Yeah, that's true. I think that's why honesty is so valuable. It's not because it's better for a relationship, even though it probably is. It's because it's better for you. Totally. I mean,
0: I've heard Sam Harris talk about this as well, but even from a psychological standpoint, it's just less work to remember the truth. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's and it's, it's less cognitive it work, Then you're like, oh, maybe I misremembered it, and you're fine, right? You're not <laughs> yeah. a liar because yeah, it's. I think the phrase he uses is like, you just all you have to do to remember what you said is track reality, yeah. which is much <laughs> yeah. much easier to do than tracking your own stories, it's because cruel. as we know, if you them? as you I think we in, we intuitively know, and as a lot of psychological science, you know, grinds out, we are not good at remembering our own things right like the little intricacies about ourselves are are not easy to remember in in the oh, ways exa- that we, yeah i
1: mean like if you could remember everything you've ever told anyone then like good on you but like if not start a podcast yeah <laughs> i yeah i don't I, this is what i think podcasting is a real exercise in courage because i cannot <laughs> remember everything i've said in every episode and i'm sure someone will be like well you said this and i'm like
0: yeah i I'm not, I'm not going to be able to argue with them. <laughs> well, I know, but I mean, like, this is because it's so, it's funny. I mean, this is a little bit self-indulgent, but I think it's interesting that, because we've recorded episodes, you know, a year and a half ago at this point, even longer. So if we listen to some of our earliest episodes, I totally won't remember anything we talked about. And there might be things that we talk about that are like current event in our lives that I'll have trouble remembering. <laughs> true true <laughs> it's a little bit like uncanny in that sense but that's neither here nor there i i think that though that the like maybe a deeper point than chris can get out when he's saying well he's quoting kerouac i guess is give me the truth is that um it's part of being a well-adjusted person, I think, in a in a David Foster Wallace sense. And then even back in a more kind of like William James sense of the term of like, if you kind of develop that radical empiricism about your own kind of ethical framework in the world, including honesty, you take on the burden of being radically self-honest in every instance, which is a very, very, I think, legitimate criticism Chris has of his parents, or at very least his father, right? Like It's hard to feel like Chris's dad would would feel any sting of hypocrisy because he just doesn't doesn't make himself beholden to that standard.
1: Isn't there a line about how he didn't even know himself? Mm -hmm. Like that the the dad didn't even know himself? If there isn't, he definitely didn't, right? Like there's that great line where she's talking about how grief can make us reflect and mature in ways that nothing else can Mm -hmm. and how that it brought them closer together, this grief over Chris wondering where he was. And I just, I can't help, but think that often we, the things we think are meant for evil in our lives and that we let harm us are actually often the things that wake us up.
0: Mm. Right. Yeah.
1: And his parents get the advantage, to be honest, of having to experience this to realize that maybe they drove their son away and they didn't even realize
0: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funny because um, you think of all of the, like, if you don't stop treating my, me like this, I'll run away. <laughs> you yeah. know, like that that juvenile, like, I'm going to run yeah. away. And yet that's essentially what that Chris runs away. Yeah, I mean, the crazy part is he runs away from
1: life, but he doesn't run away from them because he wasn't even with them for so long, right? Yeah,
0: I know. I know. So... I don't know. I, I feel like probably people who went through something like a, a massive betrayal by parents in the way that Chris did would have more insightful comments to make on the like holistic nature of this kind of feeling that Chris is going through. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a struggle for you and me because we don't have any firsthand experience no, with it. Exactly. Well, exactly.
1: So it'd be interesting to hear about that from people, like maybe an experience they went through that that made them think about these things differently.
0: Beca- and because also, like clearly, Chris has some sort of predilection towards being on his own out there in the world. You know, like yeah. I don't think he wants he wants to do it. I mean, there's a lot of people who have bad parents who don't do what Chris did.
1: No, some of them turtle, right? They just become like shells
0: mm-hmm. of people. Yeah, and so then Chris kind of is that where he comes up with the name Alexander Supertramp as his pseudonym?
1: Well, no, it's when he's coming, I think is it
0: when he comes back across the border? Oh yeah, maybe he certainly says it. Then I, I can't remember. <laughs> I didn't even watch that this long ago, but I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> uh, either way, he helps the couple out with their relationship somehow, and uh, then he, he moves really on. I never
1: understood how he did that. Like that that part never made sense to me.
0: Yeah, it felt like something that was that was like in the book or in his journals, but wasn't like an exciting part for a movie so it was just yeah. like obliquely referenced so they're kind of
1: like giving it a nod saying yeah, yeah we, we recognize that yeah that's fair
0: that kind of takes us into his time with wayne vince vaughn oh that's who i was thinking vince vaughn plays wayne in this movie and his time i think they're in is it iowa or well they're in one of the you know one of the breadbasket states kind yeah, of. yeah and thing. he works on a grain farm with this guy who i guess ends up what was he doing he was like Pirating satellite or something? Yeah, like yeah, he was he was doing something illegal. (laughs) But actually, that was that was some of my favorite parts of the movie were those scenes. And I thought, I don't know, what what did you think about his time in the Midwest? I liked it because it reminded me
1: of home. Like I feel like I'm kind of from the Midwest of Canada, maybe the the West West. But I I guess I one of the things I love about this movie is that you know whether it's the grain fields or the mountain and you know, passes, I've lived both of those lives growing up. Like I lived among the farmers and I've lived, you know, in the, not lived in the mountains. I guess I will be living in the mountains this year,
0: but uh, yeah, I think you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were two things I really loved about those, that section of the movie. And the first one was how he kind of learned what it was like to be with a group of people in the bar th- where it's just kind of like your guard can be let down and everyone knows everyone. And it's just good, just na- friendly, good fun with your friends. Yeah, yeah. Friendly, good natured, a lot of like insults and roasting, but never mean spirited. Because it's Vince Vaughn, there's a lot of hilarious linguistic hijinks going on and just yep. stylistically. Yep. It was something different. Than the kind of intellectual place Chris had been had come from previous, right?
1: Yeah, this was just people living their lives and trying to have the most beautiful life they can.
0: Mm-hmm. And even in a, you know, a dive bar in rural—I I think it was Iowa. I can't remember exactly, but it's you know could have been Minnesota or or one of those places. But even yeah. in a dive bar in the middle of nowhere in one of these states. People just have camaraderie, you know, and they have their own little idiosyncratic and idiomatic ways of talking about their jobs and their even their burns are so individualized and personal. Yeah, you know, you know, they in know really, they know each other so yeah. well, right? And I think that that kind of it's not that it's impossible to get when you're a you know early twenties, mid twenties university grad but it's just it's not it feels like so many of the conversations that I remember having at university everyone was kind of being pulled to the next thing do you know what I mean like there was there was
1: was also just like a seriousness that in Mm -hmm. like everything Mm -hmm. right like everything had to be taken a little and everyone was trying to like prove their own points and trying to find their place in the world. And everyone had a bit of an ego. Because at that age, like, how can you not have an ego? You kind of feel like you're immortal.
0: And in a weird way, it's like everyone's kind of on the clock. (laughs) You know, like, whether... It might not even be, like, on the clock for tonight. But, like, I'm on the clock in the sense that the semester's over in two months. And then what am I doing?
1: And you're also like, I know that this whole school thing is going to be over eventually. Mm -hmm.
0: And then what? Whereas... In this new environment with these farmers, no one's on the clock when they're not on the clock, right? So they can just have their actual personalities flourish and their actual thoughts. There's no jostling for status exactly, you know, in this this environment. And there's something so beautiful about that stylistically and thematically. It was one of the most glorified parts of the movie. Was his was were the scenes in the bar and his scenes with Wayne. So that, I th- I thought that was great. And that and then the other section of his time with Wayne that was really meaningful to me was the scene where he's cleaning out the bottom of that grain bin. I guess that huge grain yeah. storage bin because he's like having to get like use his hands very intricately and get he's got to get dirty right he's got to get yes right yeah. in there to clean it and I just was like wow what a what a great thing for him to have to do
1: I know I mean like it's like our roof our, our time on the roofs right we you and I were roofers for a while we we know what a hard day's work is
0: well I mean this seems like a pretty minor story but today at work our sanitizer the the rinser arm at the top, didn't work. Like it, 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 screwed on and it fell off. So it had to get screwed right. back on, but it's the kind of thing where it screws onto something that also spins. So you like need a set of pliers or a wrench right. to, to hold fast to right. the thing and then screw it on. And it's in like the top part of a sanitizer, which isn't easy to access cause it has a, a lid that comes out. So it's like, I looked at it. I was like, Oh, this is going to actually take a little bit of effort and a right. little, and a little bit of, you know, elbow grease I tried it and it wasn't working very well. So I got someone else in the office to help me out. And the combination of solving a problem, I didn't have to get dirty because it wasn't dirty, but I had to like use effort. And it wasn't, <laughs> my job isn't exactly manual labor. So <laughs> when I have to use it, right. I don't love it. But I, I, the thing is, I know how, and I know that if I do ever have to use effort or manual labor, it's always worth doing it right not half-assing it, even if it takes a little bit longer. So there was a wrench I could use, but it wasn't quite right. And I was like, you know what? If I fight with this, I might end up scraping some of the metal and then some of the the screw gets messed up, right? Or uh, I don't know. There's just a number of things today where it's like, oh, okay, this is going to take a little bit longer than I thought, but that's okay because it's got to get fixed and it's cheaper than having a plumber come do it. And I can do it. I just have to figure it out and make it work and then the person had to help me who also had to like do a little bit of manual labor. And I don't know, like I just think that certainly doing roofing in our past, but just having that kind of experience and know how, techne, I think the Greeks called it, was so just useful in in the little thing I had to do today. You know, I'm not exactly a handy person, but I'm also not scared to have to use effort to solve yeah. a problem,
1: well, and I think like that's one of the great flaws in the modern education system is we talk a lot about getting to solutions, but we don't talk a lot about enjoying the learning how to get to a solution. the The puzzle solving is not the enjoyable part; it's the having the puzzle solved. And I think we really need to start to change that and be like, look, what's you know what's really enjoyable doing a puzzle. Hmm. It's not about getting the puzzle done. It shouldn't be about that.
0: Well, I mean, I would even extend it a bit further and say the real modern goal often is to somehow get onto the committee about how to solve the problem. (laughs) right and then and then express how much more than anyone else you want the problem solved how the problem (laughs) makes you more distressed than anyone else around you and that you are a more pure version of those who want the problem solved than anybody else in the committee and what
1: we really need to do is find someone to solve the problem for us
0: yeah and it was good foreshadowing for when he had to do a lot of that manual stuff in alaska you know, yes, and and yeah. it was just it was just such an interesting. I don't I don't know maybe it's just because it's on my mind more recently, but I noticed that contrast between him coming from you know Emory College in Atlanta, very and and talking about geopolitics to cleaning the bottom of a grain elevator or a grain storage bin, right? Not a glamorous, not exactly no. like Ivy League or coastal. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not the normal trajectory for someone like that, right? Well, there's that scene where he's walking into the
1: town and he sees the guy sitting in inside through the window, and he's like, "That could be me," mm-hmm. and he and he hates it, and he has to leave again, right? And it's because, like, I think a part of him realizes that he wants that, and it bothers him that he wants it.
0: Yeah, that's that's the when he goes uh, to L.A. and he sees yes. the two sides of L.A., which is a great part of the film. But then also, Wayne is the guy that he's writing to in a lot of the voiceover and text we get in the film and i just thought it was really interesting when wayne asked him what are you going to do in alaska it made me think about like the fact that chris just wants to be out there but he doesn't think too much about what to do when he's out there <laughs> no it's true. you know so it's kind of like this maturity of like okay i get that you want to leave something behind like civilization or your parents but what are you going to do when you are there and i think so much of growing up is just thinking about what to do after you leave the thing that you don't want to what do you want to
1: do for the rest of your life
0: right not (laughs) not what do you want to do next what do you want
1: to always do
0: well this might be a weird tie-in but it makes me think a little bit of our episode on the patriot when we talked about I mean, maybe <laughs> this is a inauspicious state to talk about the vitality of American politics, but <laughs> uh, of all of the major world revolutions of the last 300 years, it really feels like the American one is the only one that has a chance. And that, I would argue, is because of how a lot of people, but specifically people like Madison really worked on like, okay, well, what are we going to make this country into once we've declared our independence and Britain is free, or we are yeah. free of Britain, right? And that kind of sense or motif is what I get from Wayne. It's like, okay, you're leaving, you're revolting, you're having a, you're having a private revolution Yeah, but what do you want?
1: What do you want out of it? What are you going to do gonna, after that? The like the end goal, yeah.
0: How are you going to sustain it? And there's just like that kind of weird common sense wisdom from wayne that is great yeah so yeah i don't know did you have any thoughts on that side of wayne or chris well i did i did really like
1: just the uh, i mean this this fall i took a month and a half off just to clean gutters and uh with my cousin who i started a roofing company with a long time ago and then uh he kept doing the roofing company and i left and just going up there on the roofs again, and this is, I mean, cleaning gutters is a lot easier than roofing, but getting up there and just remembering what it's like to work hard and to sweat. I think people, like they go to the gym to sweat and things like that, but I think it'd be valuable for people to remember what it feels like to sweat from like earning your money. Mm. Yeah. And or- uh, I like, I like to just, I don't know. I guess maybe I feel that my life has gone back to that kind of thing. To, to rem- I think there's a security in knowing that you can make money using your hands if you have
0: to. Oh, for sure. And there's something, I mean, we've mentioned this before, there's something very psychologically nourishing about having a task that you complete with your own hands. Oh, yeah. Like today with that sanitizer, once it was all screwed on – and I spun it around and it mo- and it went perfect. I was like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it was a fuck yeah moment.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: and I might add now to anybody who's interested that the sanitizer now works much better. So, <laughs> fear not. <Yeah. laughs> fear not anyone it, it who works. uses. It worked. <laughs> fear not everyone who comes to the club. So... I think since you brought it up, maybe this is a good moment. It's not a long part of the movie, but I think it's really important when he actually ends up in L.A. So it's after he's gone down the river into Mexico, hiked back up into the States, and then makes his way to L.A., and there's just these great parallel scenes between him seeing like the huge sadness and terribleness of all the homeless, the homeless crisis in L.A., and then the super rich kind of chachi looking people that he sees himself as potentially being a part of. And just that like dichotomy is so powerful narratively, I think. And then obviously in a real life sense, like the homeless, the homeless, (laughs) I don't know. I'd probably get called out in a Yale law school class for even calling them homeless, but the, the homeless problem right now in those cities, like LA, San Francisco, and a couple others on the west coast like it's just so much worse even than it was when this
1: movie came I know. out it's it's and kind of baffling like, the way that the world is going
0: that's why california is so fucking crazy like you see the the like the richest people in the world beside the most the destitute worst. people yeah, in the yeah. world, you know so yeah you brought it up a bit like what did those scenes in la make you think about
1: one of the things I noticed is the the he's looking in the window and then he sees himself in there, and he hates that version of himself, yeah, like at a bar. It's like, well, it's interesting to be that judgmental, you know what I mean? But I think it comes back to that sanctimony, right? He feels like, oh, I'll never become that because I hate it. But it's like, well, you don't know what that person's going through. You don't even know what that that person's doing, right? You don't know why they're doing it. Maybe the thing they're doing is helping more people than you could imagine. like, I said, David Foster Wallace, like, you can sit there and judge people for driving an SUV, or you can, like, assume the best, right? And you get to decide those things, right? You get to decide how you think about things. You don't get to decide how things are that often, but you get to decide how you think about them. And I just don't feel like he's doing that. He's He's decided to, like, l- kind of, like, Settle into an ideology about how the world is, and he sees himself as morally superior to these other people for how they're living their lives.
0: Mm. Although I think I I don't know. It's like it's interesting to try and think about what the movie might be trying to say in those scenes because they're like mirrored against him coming face to face with like all of the homeless homelessness of LA. And it, it feels like the moment where he was a an advocate for. You know, the people of South Africa who were under apartheid or the people in Africa suffering from the famine. But he never, well, I don't know. Maybe he went to Africa, but it felt like the homeless people in LA was the first time he was actually face to face viscerally with one of the real problems of the world.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. And it seemed to sadden him in a way that was almost kind of impressive i thought like the way he kind of got sad i found him to be less obnoxious <laughs> in yeah. in those scenes than he had been before yeah i'd agree with you
1: on that i think it was a humbling and like kind of a but i guess the impression i got from it was less profound maybe but i at the heart of it i just felt like he was you know, he's like, oh, th- this lifestyle that I'm currently on has consequences down the road. And like he wanted to run from that too.
0: Maybe he saw himself as what he didn't like and was judgmental, but also maybe the best version of what we could get out of it is that there is something, I don't know. I don't want to use moral language, but there's something quite sad. Like not not pathetic, but draining and demoralizing in in the best sense like the most vital sense of the term demoralizing to have just like the this opulence beside all of this human tragedy and sadness like it's so weird it's weird in a sense that it's like right physically and geographically beside each other
1: yeah we don't (laughs) like seeing that dichotomy just right in our face
0: have you heard of um the acronym nimby
1: Oh, yes. Not in my backyard. Not in my
0: backyard. Uh, The do-gooder who just doesn't want... They want to help homelessness, but just they don't want... Not not if it's in my backyard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's something... I mean, we were talking about kind of sanctimony and hypocrisy earlier. There's something a little bit eyebrow-raising about how the states with so much of the rhetoric around helping people have some of these problems the worst oh yeah and and to be fair like some of that is climate like california is just an easier state to be homeless in as turn in terms of the temperature but i don't know i'm not an expert on this i shouldn't pontificate too much other than i i felt chris i palpably felt chris's sadness in a non moralized sense but just in a in a human reaction sense to the suffering of others and the sadness of the world because i've seen stuff like that in like i've been i don't want to make this about me i i have experienced similar things that have made me feel that emotion that i got out of the scene with chris walking through the homeless yeah and so i empathized with him and maybe i could be better and i could figure out ways to sympathize and empathize with the homeless people more but i don't you know and so uh in the sense that i've never experienced that so i don't know my
1: buddy uh my buddy alexi uh has he biked all the way from la to toronto so he's like he's been around homeless people because he's just you know been camping as he's biking all the way and he has some crazy stories, but uh, the only reason I mention him is because I have another podcast that I'm doing called The Canadian Story, and he's our second guest, so that episode's coming out. Uh, hey, so plug probably... away.
0: That won't be the last time you hear about The Canadian Story.
1: <laughs> but I guess my uh, my point on that is he knows a lot about homelessness. There's some crazy things that happen to homeless people that we just ignore, like one of the greatest... Causes of death in homelessness is your tent co- catching on fire and taking all the oxygen out of the air and just you suffocate. Wow. Yeah. Wouldn't that, have guessed that. No. I learned about this over lunch with him this year. I think we we all want to believe that we, would, that we pay attention to this and we care about it, but I think we all get con- pretty consumed by our own lives and we don't really think that much about the truly misfortunate
0: among us. And part of that non, either non-desire or non-ability or non-default setting to think about that makes it a lot harder to solve problems, root problems around this kind of thing. Yeah. Because we don't want it in our backyard, right? Well, exactly. (laughs) And it's not even like I can particularly blame people who feel that way.
1: Right. Oh, because I mean, you don't you don't want that in your backyard, right?
0: I I have almost infinite compassion and sympathy for drug addicts or uh, homeless people or people who are suffering in this way, and yet I still wouldn't want my children to be playing around them. No, you know, no. Like that's that's exactly part of, that's part of the like, I don't have any children. I'm just speaking like we're hardwired at cross purposes for these problems so often. And I think a huge part of the problem is that we don't acknowledge the cross purposes that are going through our own minds, right? Very like, true. like the, 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 different, the pulling of different ways that any individual person has on an issue that has almost nothing to do with how they publicly profess they feel about an issue, you know, true. like I, I recently heard, um, you might be interested in this cause he was making a political point, but. The uh, British author Douglas Murray was on a podcast recently. He, he asked a, a question that sounds rhetorical, but it really shouldn't be, where it's like, well, why is it almost 50-50 between conservatives and liberals in every democratic election? Like, why, right. is, it, why is it so close all the time? And he says, <laughs> right. well, it's obvious. Every single person feels the pull between conservative and liberal within their own selves. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, some yeah. people vote one way in one election and a different way in a different election, because the specific things about any political party pull them in one way or another based on where they are in their life. Right. Yeah. There's, it's, it's probably, it's probably the minority who vote for one party their whole life. Right. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. And, and so, but this is an existential and psychological thing that is really hard to admit publicly, especially with the way social media works is that, yeah, I, I probably feel like the way I do now, but who knows in 10 years, you know? Right, yeah. And admit it, like, imagine the PR disaster of a politician admitting, like, I kind of, I like, I I sense, I I see the hopelessness of this homeless problem, but personally, I am reviled by them, so it clouds my judgment. (laughs) Like, who could say that as a politician, Right but nobody nobody <laughs> but if i heard that i for me if i heard a politician i'd say that i'd be like well this one is more honest than the rest you know or otherwise like someone's like i really want to figure out how to help the homeless problem but if i make that a top 5 issue in my campaign i won't get elected so i'm not going to right right, right. yeah like all of yeah. these 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 things that are i mean this goes to a deeper point i've made before on the podcast it was like our culture needs to grow the fuck up. We need to get more okay with uncomfortable and ugly underbellies of human personalities that aren't morally reprehensible. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? Exactly. But again, I think a major block to that is I don't actually think we are in an era that wants to solve problems nearly as much as we want to talk about how much the problems are affecting me personally. (laughs) Oh, it couldn't have said it better myself. Luke. not couldn't have said it better myself. Don't get me going on the culture of pathos and self. We are
1: there's a lot <laughs> of self pity wandering around the world.
0: Anyway, what did you think about the whole stuff with them on the kind of Burning Man esque campground in the desert?
1: I don't. I. I mean, I liked that they had Chris refuse to sleep with
0: Christian Stewart.
1: I liked that he decided not to sleep with her because I think it just showed a. An element of character like he wasn't just doing what he was doing for like the hedonistic pleasure he mm-hmm. would, he wanted to be a good person right
0: and personally i loved that uh her name was tracy by the way i loved that instead of tracy like obviously instead of being a, a douche and probably a statutory rapist because she was only 16 he channels that energy into something so positive in terms of them making a song together. Yeah. You know, like, like taking, taking something that could have been so negative and putting that energy into something positive, like obviously in a completely different way, but so much of that is what I do at work with taking negative energy of a kid and figuring out how to channel it into something positive. Like, Oh, you're having a bit of a hard day or you're feeling annoyed. Let's channel that energy into soccer, (laughs) you know, like that kind of thing. And I thought that was a really good motif. And yeah, just how, I don't know, like I found that whole section so pleasant. And I think it was because of the music. I loved that kind of... The the music was very hauntingly beautiful. There's something, again, there's something so American about this film, I think. With this, I don't even know what you'd call it, like acoustic rock, acoustic soulful rock. I definitely think there's some some like blues influence for sure. Oh yeah, I mean that 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 whole music open mic stage session and maybe this is just total fantasy, but it's like how I imagine Bob Dylan started. <laughs> you know?
1: Exactly. Like, it, exactly. It's,
0: it's these are the American troubadours. Yes. Are yes. in this environment, right? Dirty, dingy, poor on the road. Not much to their name.
1: Just loving the art.
0: And singing their little hearts out. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, there's no way you could imagine Tracy is 16 with the kind of music that she makes. You no. Know?
1: no, that's true.
0: So I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I love music. So
1: <laughs>
0: I found those scenes great.
1: You do. You do.
0: I think we'll talk a little bit about his time with Ron. And I'd open it with the quote he makes, which is, The most enduring quote of the movie to me other than it's not a quote i guess he writes it where happiness is only real when shared but his quote that he actually says is um i think careers are a 20th century invention and i don't want one
1: (laughs) yeah i mean maybe they are well and i think
0: statistics seem to bear that out a little bit for our generation wouldn't you say
1: yeah, we all we we seem to have a lot of different jobs and everyone's yeah, got a different path. I, I think that's true. And I think that's maybe kind of always been true to some degree. I think maybe the last 100 years have been an anomaly. I think it's so human. I think what I love about this movie is how human it is. Because like Ron's kind of disappointment with his life, but his, his seeing a possible redemption in his relationship with Chris. But Chris saying, you know, I can't give that to you because like that isn't authentic to me. I have to live my life and you can't get your sense of purpose from your relationship with me.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm. And yeah. I actually
1: like Chris is, is the far more mature member of this relationship emotionally.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we learn a little bit why given what happened to Ron with his uh, son and his wife.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I don't know. Like you you mentioned this whole section with Ron was your parents' favorite part of the movie, or at least your mom's. Yeah,
1: I think my mom and dad just really enjoyed the the ability of connection between people. They've always loved that about and I think this particular moment captures how, you know, friendship can span these great divides and just be such a I don't know a bomb to the wound of existence, right?
0: Yeah, I agree. So, what um, did you pick? Anything else out from their interactions?
1: I I love I love how Chris says to Ron, he's like, "You're gonna live for an, a long time, old man."
0: <laughs> I love that
1: because <laughs> I cause I've thought about that as I've aged into my thirties. I I used to be like, "Oh, thirties are so old," and now I'm like. <laughs> Nobody talks about the time after the 30s, but you're going to live for a long time, old man.
0: Old right?
1: man. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like I'm going to live for... Well, hopefully, like, I mean, you never know, but statistically, I probably will live
0: for another 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, you talk about it, the golden years of your youth. Yes, um, exactly. I'm loving a, them. They're good. They're good years. There's a, There's a song by a band I like called The Spill Canvas. I think it's Black Dresses. And there's a line in it. It's a very passionate song. There's a line in it where it's like, a funeral to my once-loved youth. (laughs) Oh, wow. There (laughs) you go. And I don't know. I wonder if youth being worshipped the way it is culturally makes it really hard to see beyond your 30s let's say <laughs> right? well i
1: think yeah i don't think it always was that way right i don't think youth used to be worshipped the way it is now and i don't, i understand why it is like on a biological level maybe it's a little bit more appealing just a purely like on a sensual level and then there's also you know you got more vitality towards some things but like there's a lot of other sad things that come with youth like just being awash in hormones and being confused and maybe full of anger at one moment and like sadness at the next and like it's pretty nice when that mellows out a bit
0: yeah yeah i agree (laughs) and yeah you're right there is something very deliciously comedic about a 23 year old telling an 80 something year old that he's got a lot of life ahead of him old man (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a good piece of humor in the movie for sure and yeah i i don't know i i think i read somewhere actually that the the actor who plays ron hal holbrook he actually got nominated for best supporting oscar for i don't think he won but i was like yeah you know what that his role it was it was relatively small in the film but he made a big impact in the movie he didn't did
1: he? yeah people loved that role yeah <laughs> uh,
0: you know you're living around these like dope-smoking nudists, right? <laughs> or whatever he says. But it is... Yeah, it never really bothered me. Never really bothered me. It really it really does go to show, in a beautiful way, the, the sense of lifelong learning that yes. an open-minded person yes. can find themselves in. And I think... And I think
1: that's truly glorious, right?
0: Yeah, and maybe this is another reason why your parents liked Ron and the scenes with Ron, but his, that his enduring line is, um, when you forgive you love, Yeah, you know, and we've talked a lot about forgiveness on this podcast. If you, if any listener wants to hear probably our deepest dive into it, like the last 20, 25 minutes of our line, the witch in the wardrobe episode, we go into it a lot, but I, I, I really feel like it's one of the major gaps of our, at least cultural world today is like, What even counts as an apology or forgiveness? Yeah. It's an obvious necessary social mechanism. But I think what Ron is getting at in this movie and I love is that it's also a really important psychological one, too. Yeah. No, it's true. You know? It's true. The amount of, of, of toil and struggle internally you have if you don't forgive. I mean... I'm pretty sure it's happened to everybody. It would, it's a rare person that hasn't struggled with this at some point in their life. And I think if you search your soul, you'll realize, yeah, this is, this is, it, 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 it destroys you damaging. from the inside out. Yeah. It's just damaging. hmm And again, it solves no problems. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. yeah, I loved those scenes with Ron. So of any of the things that happened in Alaska, which ones were the most interesting to you? When you were watching this
1: i think the one that always strikes me from this film is when he's dealing with the moose meat mm. and then all of his work is for naught nature just basically gives him a big slap upside the head and says you can't survive here you can't even and then the and then he's watching the the coyotes and the wolves eat eat the meat that he killed and that he's tried to prepare and there's just this sense of how vicious life is mm. like we often praise life as this you know Beautiful, positive force, but there's like there's a dark side to survival, and it, it's not a respecter of persons.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the moose is definitely the most I think impactful scene in the Alaska time, and it made me think about how I guess I had a realization where it was like tragedy is an emergent quality in the human condition, not a yes. not a superimposed yes. one. You no. know, <laughs> uh, no, how. He writes the the thing with the moose is the most tragic moment or the biggest tragedy of his life. I think he writes in his journal. Is yeah. is that dealing with the moose where he comes across this moose, he he, he kills he's, it. He's so hungry like he hasn't eaten hardly for so long. He kills it but he doesn't like necessarily have all of his tools, so he's got to like do a makeshift makeshift smokehouse because of someone he talked to when he was with Wayne, he learned a lot about like hunting and killing animals, so he learns you can't get maggots. Like, it's just totally fucked if there's maggots on it. So yeah. when he sees yeah. all the maggots and larva on it, he knows it's ruined, and he's, like, killed this majestic creature for nothing, it turns out, just nothing, right? Like, how... Yeah. Just nature is so much bigger than him, and symbolically... Please the get wo-
1: that sense from this. You're just like, this is a helpless child wandering in a world he doesn't understand.
0: And then... Symbolically, it's so tied in beautifully how the the wolves and the eagle come in and just eat the scraps. Yeah, and you can exactly. just and you can just kind of like if the wolves could talk or if the eagle could talk in their eye, you see, uh, what the fuck are you doing here, kid? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: know. There there is something so beautifully sad and wistful about the moose scene. You know, one of Nietzsche's first works was The Birth of Tragedy. And I guess it's kind of like when you first notice that all of your efforts were for naught and not really because of your fault even either. And how you're like even worse off than you were before because you spent all your time on something that didn't pan out at all. But then other than learning from tragedy i guess is all you can do
1: well i mean you don't have to learn from it but it's certainly a better thing to do with it than nothing
0: yeah well yeah uh, yeah, i guess that's what i'm saying (laughs) yeah
1: yeah so that was definitely the most impactful part in Mm -hmm. my mind and then i think the second thing you just notice is that he really does love being there That he really does love nature. Like that is an authentic joy that he's experiencing and getting to see it all and appreciating it. And I mean, even though it ends poorly for him, he does get those moments of beauty and joy and they are the things that inspire him to die well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he does seem to die with this weird kind of like almost half smile on his face.
1: (laughs) There's a dignity to how he faces it. You know, there's that line from Marcus Aurelius, you know, Death smiles at us all, all we can do is smile back. Mm. Right. And I feel like, you know, at the end of his days, maybe that maybe that's the heroism of this movie is yeah, he does seem to be able to welcome death when it arrives.
0: And just like cinematically, how after that the next shot is the bus and the shot starts to rise up in the air, right? Yeah. Getting a more aerial yes. shot with with hard sun playing again. And yep. you know, I just choked up. I I, oh, I I was yeah. I just about started crying out of feeling, you know? Yeah. Not any particular yeah. feeling, just feeling. I loved your um point on just how he appreciated the beauty of the landscapes of Alaska because I think that's kind of part of what I was meaning at the beginning by referencing the essays by Emerson. Yes. But obviously, yes. Obviously, no writing will ever substitute for seeing a beautiful no. landscape. I got, yeah, I got
1: to go on this amazing trip in 2018 with a bunch of friends where we drove from Vancouver up. We tried to get to the a- Arctic Ocean. We didn't quite make it, but we drove all through BC, all the way up north through the Yukon up the Dempster Highway. And there's just there's some things that just do not compare to getting out there and seeing what the world is really like.
0: Mm. Although I will say I don't think anyone does it better than Emerson <laughs> when it comes I, to nature. I would the argue true.
1: maybe that that William Service does that. Uh, this guy who wrote the Spell of the Yukon.
0: Uh, okay. Well, I've never read Service, so I'll, I'll plead agnosticism on it. But I'm open-minded about it.
1: <laughs> uh, one of these days, maybe we'll do a poem.
0: Oh yeah, no, I would <laughs> so, love that. He's the the poet laureate for the uh,
1: for the Yukon, and I I gotta say he. He's really something special. I, I highly recommend the, right. the the poem, The Spell of the Yukon by Robert Williams Service.
0: Yeah. I'd love to do a poem. That's actually a great idea. Or a couple yeah. poems or something.
1: Yeah, it would be great. Well, actually, you know what we should do? Because our cousin Dan's favorite poem is a T.S. Eliot poem, the, the love song of Sir, I can't pronounce the game, Poof Rock or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, he would love to do that one. It's got that line: um, "I'm old, I'm old. I shall re- wear my trousers rolled. I shall walk upon the beach."
0: <laughs> yeah, that's. Do I great. dare to eat a peach? <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I guess just especially given the last shot of the film, going up into the sky, and you just seeing the like this huge Alaskan landscape, it really ties back into that appreciation of nature. That oh yeah, for is. Sure. is can be found in every culture in every country, but there's something about the American way of interpreting the beauty of nature that I find really appealing, I guess. And, and something. It's, it's different. It's different
1: mm-hmm. and special. I think it's got yeah.
0: its own flavor. And I would, this is why I say, I think the, you know, this form of genre, even though it's not fiction per se, Emerson and Thoreau and Kerouac aren't fiction per se it's still a literary genre. And I, I, I'm I'm saying, only me, my opinion, I think this is the third great American literary genre. Um, I,
1: I, I think that's a great insight. And I, I got to say that I agree with you. Yeah. And I, I'd like to put Jack London in, in that category. Exactly, and yeah. I think we should do a Jack London book.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there are some books, I think that obviously these aren't in a vacuum. Like Jack London is a great crossover, I think, between nature and... But also an existential brooding to it a little bit, you know. Yes, and, true, and, true, and true. Maybe even better is Steinbeck. Steinbeck yeah. is very firmly in both the observing the beauty of the nature of the landscapes of and brooding, yeah, and yet also the existential part, you know. Whereas, like, I I really liked Hemingway. I like reading Hemingway, but you don't really get <laughs> this beautiful imagery of the landscape. No, <laughs> true, true. Too. You there just you get
1: go. or. I mean for the, for that matter Faulkner would would not he doesn't he's not really describing the beautiful landscapes yeah, yeah yeah
0: so you don't you don't get a sense of the call of the wild with all of these authors no. in a way that this yeah I mean I've read a little bit of Kerouac and I've read a lot of Emerson and Thoreau and I'm just I don't know I'm feeling right I'm not feeling any one thing per se but I'm feeling in the same way that the there's end of a, this there's there's a depth
1: to it it's like yeah. deep calls out to deep right
0: well and and how it's it's your relationship to the world without the positive or negative human intermediary that is pretty common for our lives, you know?
1: Yeah, my my buddy, uh, or actually my brother in law, said something to me the other day when we were watching that Our Strange Rock uh, documentary that that's on uh, Disney Plus, and he said they were talking about nitrogen and how it kind of flows through all living things. And he's like, you know, what is death? Death is like the ceasing of moving, right? But he's like, but our atoms aren't going to cease to move. Mm-hmm. Everything that makes up what we are will continue on. Yeah. And so in a sense, we never stop
0: mm-hmm. being. Yeah.
1: Uh it's just that this form formulation of ourselves ceases to be. And I think maybe there's some comfort in in knowing that, you know, from dust we come and to
0: dust we will return. Maybe that's the feeling we're feeling. Yeah, and I mean to piggyback onto that there's a wonderful uh youtube clip maybe i'll try to find it and include it in the episode show notes for this one but it's of neil degrasse tyson responding to well what are you going to do when when, if you're just a materialist or you're just a naturalist you don't believe in a like a religious afterlife how how can you reconcile your own death basically right he's just got this beautiful I won't try to imitate it, but just this beautiful poetic answer of how his body will return from whence it came to, to feed and nourish organic materials to become their own beautiful things. And it's just, it's so it's the, it's the, it's the best kind of the poetry of science that he can, that he can conjure up, you know? And I mean, I, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, (laughs) so, The only other kind of, and it's because it's one of my favorite things, so I'm going to emphasize it. I think not only was the music perfect for this film, the musician was perfect for this film. Because I feel like Eddie Vedder is one of, if not the best exemplar in music of this authentic, speculative, curious about the world but not pretentious beauty, right? Right, Like he's right. he's got this haunting voice and this haunting singing voice. His entire career, his songs are about deep things, like mm-hmm. Pearl Jam's breakout, I, I don't know if it was their debut album, I think it was, but it was definitely their breakout album, 10, which came out in 1991. The hit songs are Even Flow, Alive, Jeremy, and Black. Even Flow is a song about the tragedy of homelessness, so appropriate for something we said earlier alive is a song about trying to reconnect with an estranged father jeremy is a song about a kid that kills himself in front of a class and black is about a failed relationship right so like right. their hit songs that are getting tons of radio play are about deep existential life things in a way They're that true. you know the previous generation of bon jovi and guns and roses just weren't <laughs>
1: <laughs> right right and
0: and 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 so eddie Vedder's whole career is just great song after great song about this kind of wistful speculative flirting with melancholy but not quite of this american life almost in a sense and so i just think that it's his inclusion as the kind of main musician and and writer of some original songs hard sun is an original song i found out but he wrote some original songs. Just He is this journeyman musician. He's like yeah. the musician of the people. You know? uh, yeah, exactly.
1: I love it. Yeah,
0: he and really is. this is a completely different movie that it would probably, it's not a hugely famous movie, but would be a really good, really true fiction movie called Out of the Furnace, um, like seven or eight years ago with Christian Bale, Woody Harrelson, and um, Casey Affleck, I think. There's the song Release by Pearl Jam plays at the beginning and the end of the film. And you're just like, oh, this is the blue-collar, working-class song of sadness that we're feeling right now, you know? Wow. And so I guess I'm just really expressing my deep love of I'm trying to find this thread in culture that comes to me from Emerson through the American experience and, and the Canadian too, which I include the musicians like Eddie Vedder and Gord Downey from the tragically hip or like the troubadours, right? The kind of modern yes. troubadours who sing about what it's like well, to Bob be a person. Dylan's definitely in
1: that vein. Yeah. And what? I just even think Leonard Cohen is.
0: Mm-hmm. What it's like to be a person living in this time and place
1: yes exactly
0: and nature being such a big part of the american experience in that way so i just wanted to express my dear love of eddie Vedder as a cultural touchstone for me and his music is something that has made my life so much better and so eddie if you're listening thank you <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so final thoughts on this movie david if you don't have anything else
1: Oh, I just, I guess I would just say that I I think that if if anyone who doesn't feel the tug of their heart to do exactly what Chris does in this at some point in their lives, I don't know if they've ever truly loved nature, right? Because, like, I think there's at least four or five times a week I'm like, I just want to go live off the land and never ever have to think about anything but my own survival again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's something very appealing about it
1: you know, checking out of civilization.
0: I guess the kind of the deeper, part of the deeper lesson of this film is how that realization he has at the end that actually his favorite parts of all of this were, were just yeah, memories other and, his, other and his people. flashbacks, right? Like sharing those moments. So like, this is an entire other podcast, so I won't get into it too much here, but I think it's really interesting is like, There's a way of strawmanning the concept of self-reliance into pure, unadulterated egoism, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're so selfish or you can't even conceive of other people. And I think that, and this is the argument I would make, is that the Emersonian conception of self-reliance is actually so internally focused that part of it is so that you can become the kind of person worthy of other people worthy of their time, worthy of their appreciation. And that form of self-reliance is what Chris shows to Rainy and the woman whose name I can't remember played by Catherine Keener. That kind of self-reliance is part of his strength when it comes to not taking advantage of Tracy when she's throwing herself at him, when he's showing that maturity to Ron And when he has those genuine relationships with Wayne and the guys in in the bar, that's the kind of self-reliance that he realizes maybe too late, but he realizes is what he needed as opposed to this kind of more literal self-reliance yeah,
1: exactly just only myself all i need is me kind of stuff mm-hmm.
0: now of course i've talked a little bit to you about how i think there's a really good argument to be made here started by Karl popper of the difference between individualism and egoism i won't get into it here but teaser for all you philosophy nerds out there it's coming one day on a different <laughs> podcast go. uh yeah. but just how yeah that like that realization of Happiness is only real when shared. Like his actual memories of those flashbacks are what are more meaningful to him. It, it seems like than all of the things that he did in Alaska, even though other than maybe appreciating the beauty, even though everything he did in Alaska, like he, he everything he was doing in his flashbacks were so he could get, get to Alaska. To
1: Alaska. <laughs> yeah, true, true.
0: So I don't know. It was just beautiful, though. Beautiful, beautiful film. And I was really, I felt really grateful to be able to see it again. So yeah.
1: No, I'm glad we decided to do it.
0: So, again, we want to thank everyone for listening. If you get anything out of Really True Fiction, uh, you can uh, join our Facebook group or send us an email reallytrufiction at gmail.com. If you subscribe on any of the main podcasting apps, you will get notified every time we release a new episode. We try to release new episodes on Sundays. But thank you. We would love to hear from you with any thoughts. And if you want to be a guest, let us know. We are wide open to that. Absolutely. So uh, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason.
1: And my name is David Parker. And
0: David, may the force be with you.
1: And also with you.